millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is the anniversary of the first successful underwater trials in 1863 of the submarine built for the Confederate States during the American Civil War, the H.L. Hunley. Now, as this is featuring in our mini-series on maritime disasters, I thought it would be appropriate to remind everyone that although this particular story did end up in disaster, it was not necessarily predestined to do so, and the Hunley did have successful sea trials. If this is the first episode in our mini-series on maritime disasters that you've come across, please do check out the back catalogue. We've got some fabulous episodes about maritime disasters that you will have heard of, like the Titanic or Lusitania, but also ones you will never have heard of before. I think my favourite episode so far of them all is the eyewitness accounts of the sinking of the Lusitania, read out by actors. It's chilling, horrifying and heartwarming all at the same time. And for those interested in engineering, do check out the episode on Titanic's anchors. Absolutely fascinating stuff for the engineering-minded. The story of the Hunley now is quite remarkable. It's one of those stories that you can come back to time and time again. I've personally always been fascinated by the early submarine pioneers and how they were exploring an environment as dangerous as the early space pioneers, I think. And yet they willingly did so. As someone who is a little claustrophobic, the whole concept is completely beyond me. And I think that that amazement is what makes it so fascinating. And that right there is the magic of history. Sometimes you come across a story that you simply must get an answer to. Why did these people willingly get inside an iron tube that was built to operate underwater at a time when the science of operating vessels underwater was not properly understood? Then the next question, why did they continue to do so when the vessel repeatedly demonstrated that it was dangerous? It's important to add here that although the Hunley had trials on this day in 1863, she sank in August 1863 during another test run, killing five of her eight crew. She was raised, but then she sank again in October, killing all eight of her crew, including Horace Hunley, the vessel's designer. 
before finally sinking, permanently this time, in 1864, again killing all of her crew. To find out more, I spoke with Michael Scafuri, senior archaeologist at the Warren Lash Conservation Centre in North Charleston, South Carolina, home of the Hunley, which was raised from the depths in 2000 with all of its secrets perfectly preserved. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the deeply knowledgeable and fascinating Michael, whose job I am very, very jealous of. Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Sam, uh, it's a great pleasure. Okay, the Hunley. So how does the Hunley fit into the, the broader history of, of submarines? Um, well, uh, basically the Hunley is the first submarine to sink an enemy ship in combat. That is its primary significance. The first time that someone used a submersible to, uh, to do anything significant. She has a very interesting history in that it wasn't particularly successful and a lot of people died on board her. What was, what was wrong with it? Um, well, you have to remember that in the mid-19th century, uh, submarines as a concept were entirely experimental. Um, nobody really knew how to build a proper submarine. Nobody really knew the best way to design it or how to operate it. So everybody was kind of uh, figuring out as they went along. Uh, there were a number of different submarines. Uh, obviously, Hunley wasn't the first submarine ever ever conceived. That goes back hundreds of years. And it certainly wasn't the first one built. Um, uh, David Bushnell's The Turtle is kind of considered the first real submersible. Uh, it was built during the uh, American Revolutionary War, where they tried to sink British warships in New York Harbor uh, unsuccessfully. And from there, the concept was developed by various individuals around the world. Um, uh, but one of the things that uh, held people back was the technology available to them to construct such a thing. Uh, Bushnell's submarine was built out of wood. And so fast forward to the mid-19th century with the Industrial Revolution in full swing or having taken place. Um, now there were factories that could roll out plate iron. Uh, this meant that um, for a variety of purposes, people could use large amounts of iron to construct various things. Uh, this is when you started seeing the emergence of iron-hulled warships, replacing the traditional wooden-hulled uh, ships of the line. Um, and then also people said, well, let's see what we can do with this material and this resource to build other things like submersibles. And so um, in the 1860s, there were a number of uh, submersible designs being uh, built and tested around the world and in the United States during the American Civil War, North and South. Um, and Hunley was one of these. But nobody really knew the best way to do it. Um, and these designs, while they could be made functional, were certainly not safe. Uh, so, as you can imagine, a submarine has to be able to go under the water. So it can't be that buoyant by design, which means it can go down pretty easily, as it's supposed to. You know, And there's a lot yeah, of... When it goes wrong, it sinks right, like Right, right. Well, there's a lot of ways that there could be accidents here in this, uh, with, you know, with this technology. Um, yeah. What do we know about Horace Hunley, the inventor? Uh, was this his first stab at anything maritime? No, I mean, he's, uh, uh, he came from New Orleans. Um, he, uh, he was a, a lawyer, uh, and he, uh, along with a few other individuals, came up with this idea of building a submersible um, as part of their contribution or intended contribution to, to their side in the Civil War. 
And so uh, he got together with uh, two engineers, um, James McClintock and Baxter Watson in New Orleans, um, and started the process of designing and building a submersible. And this is uh, the, the first one they built was called the Pioneer One, a cigar-shaped vessel. Um, again, nobody really knew the best way to make these things work. Uh, but they had to abandon it in New Orleans, and then they moved their operation to Mobile, where they built two more submarines, the third of which was the, the H.L. Hunley. So he wasn't an engineer, uh, but he was, uh, uh, like I said, an investor um, and sort of the, uh, um, the person who really was pushing this project forward. How did the Hunley work? I mean, in terms of going up and going down and being able to steer a course. Right. Well, um, they had the basic things you need to operate at sea. They had a rudder uh, controlled by the captain in the forward part of the submarine with a series of levers. Uh, they had a propeller for propulsion. Um, this was uh, hand-powered, and so the crew would sit on one side of the inside of the submarine along its main crew compartment uh, and turn a hand crank. Um, to uh, travel up and down, uh, they had dive planes on either side, so they could use these planes to uh, pitch the submarine down and then back up. And then they had two ballast tanks. So if you could imagine this long, narrow uh, vessel, uh, the center part uh, separated by bulkheads where the crew sat, and then the ends were reserved for ballast. Uh, they could flood these sort of the ends of the submarine uh, to give them more weight, which will allow them to uh, submerge. Uh, it's not the best design. Um, uh, modern submarines would have have the same thing. They have water ballast, uh, but they have it centrally located, right? So you don't uh, you don't make your uh, your vessel off balance with two separate ballast tanks. But again, as I said, uh, experimental vessel. Nobody really knew the best way to design these things at the time. And then how do you get the water out of those tanks when you want to come up again? So they had two um, hand pumps uh, right next to the bulkheads on either side of the crew compartment. Think of these as well pumps. They're simple force pumps um, that they would operate, and that would push water out of the ballast tanks back into the ocean. Very simple system, straightforward. Um, the water was controlled with a series of valves. Uh, you could open a valve to let seawater in open another valve to allow the seawater to be pumped out. Uh, the system was um, primed, uh, so there would always be water in the, in the, in the valve and uh, pipe system, uh, so that at any moment they could start moving water if they needed to. Well, I mean, so the, the principles behind it were, were, were sound. Is, it, is that fair to say? And it was, was it the, um, the operation that went wrong? I'm thinking here about... Um, well, there are three sinkings to think about, aren't there? Should we talk right. about the first one? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, there's lots of ways things can go wrong. The principles were sound. Um, the technology was, they were pushing the limits of, of what they could construct. Um, for example, there wasn't, uh, they didn't have uh, welding. Welding hadn't been invented as we know it, uh, like arc welding. And so everything had to be constructed with rivets, all of the plates. But anything complex like a, a, a hatch cover or something that couldn't be made out of plate iron had to be cast. So you've got cast iron components riveted to wrought iron plates. Um, um, a lot of it would be labor intensive, uh, but they, they did know what they were doing. And, um, and so, you know, in a sense, it was sound. Um, but looking at, you know, reasons why uh, the submarine goes down, um, you know, there's a variety of factors at play. Uh, a lot of it is human error. A lot of it is uh, 
the crew not really understanding the best way to operate the vessel. And this is us looking back from, you know, 150 years or so, um, trying to deduce what happened. Uh, one of the problems for the Hunley and, and other uh, events in history is always the, the primary source material. Where do we get our information? How do we know? And with Hunley, we don't have a lot of primary material. We do have some, but it takes the form of letters written by people who observe these events. Um, in some cases, we have letters from you know the, the people involved, uh, but in other cases, we don't. We don't have a logbook. We don't have blueprints of its design or construction, anything like that. A lot of the records, in, you know, in times of war, a lot of times, uh, especially when you're trying to find records about something from the losing side, uh, records don't survive. They're burned up in fires or, or destroyed. Um, and so we're limited in our information about the events surrounding the operation of Hunley, but we've done the best we can with what we have. Uh, the three sinkings started right after the submarine came to Charleston. Um, as it turned out, um, when they arrived in Charleston in August of 1863, they uh, uh, set up and began to sort of make plans to attack the blockading fleet. The purpose of Hunley's uh, shipment, after being constructed in Mobile, Alabama, they were sent on train uh, to Charleston because Charleston was a significant port for both sides during the war. It was the first shots fired during the Civil War. Uh, sort of symbol of secession for the South. And for that very reason, the North had a great interest in, in capturing it uh, as a symbol of secession, right? Uh, and so there, what had happened was uh, <clears throat> the United States Navy had positioned the South Atlantic blockading fleet around or offshore of Charleston, blockading the port. In addition, there was a, <clears throat> a land army nearby, um, <clears throat> and they were trying to approach the city uh, from... Uh, uh, the land side. Uh, but it had reached a point of stalemate where the defenses of Charleston were strong enough to repel the naval invading or blockading uh, fleet. They couldn't uh, enter Charleston Harbor and take the city. So you had a stalemate. And uh, Hunley was sent to Charleston to try and break this stalemate or to attack the, uh, the blockading fleet. Uh, at the start of the American Civil War, uh, most of the naval resources of, of the United States were held in uh, northern waters. Most of the significant uh, uh, shipbuilding centers were in the north. And so uh, the U.S. Navy was much stronger than what Navy the Confederate side could put together. Uh, and so they really had no recourse as far as trying to repel this blockading fleet other than unconventional methods. Right? They sent small boats out with uh, spar-mounted torpedoes. They uh, tried a number of different things to try and... Um, do something about this blockade um, and so we're willing to to entertain the idea of, of trying like I said unconventional methods like submarine technology which really wasn't a part of anybody's navy these weren't this wasn't a naval venture really um, and in the Hunley's case it was a private private venture it was put together by private individuals um, but they did work with the Confederate authorities when they came to Charleston but it wasn't the Confederate Navy it was the Confederate Army Okay, so you had a man named P.G.T. Beauregard who was in charge of defending Charleston. They reported to him when they came to, uh, he was an army officer. They reported to him when they came to Charleston, told him what they were intended. Um, you know, this was all planned in advance. He took over uh, responsibility for the project. Um, you can imagine a whole team of people coming, the engineers, the designers, the builders, the crew, uh, the people who had trained on the submarine back in Mobile, and, um, you know, Horace Hunley himself. And uh, 
<clears throat> so he took over uh, paying the uh, salaries and uh, uh, and funding the project from from the, his end. Um, but he wanted something in return. He wanted them to do something about this blockade of the city of Charleston. And so they set up and started practicing and training. Um, and he grew impatient after a few weeks that they hadn't done anything yet. And so he seized the vessel and put uh, military personnel on board and told them to take it and try and do something about the blockade. And um, shortly thereafter, they sank right off the dock. Um, we're not really sure exactly what happened, but it looked like they were trying to get underway. The hatches were open. Somebody stepped on the dive plane that angled, that dipped the nose of the submarine into the water. And as I said this before, the, the submarine's not, you know, most of it is under the water. So it doesn't take much to submerge that forward hatch, allowing the submarine to flood. Five men died uh, as a result of this accident. A few got out. But uh, um, his impatience was, you know, understandable from someone not understanding or not with a naval background. Um, the, the problem with the submarine, it, and it was known by the builders and designers, was that it was slow. It was a hand-powered vessel. Um, they would have loved to have used a proper engine, but the engine of the, that they had available to them was a steam engine, and that's not going to work underwater. It requires air. And so they would often be towed into position or towed around um, very slow. They knew this. And so it's important for them, if they're going to operate offshore at sea, even you know close into shore but in the ocean, uh, that they understand that what we think of as the maritime landscape, the maritime landscape, it's the, you know, where are the, uh, the shoals, where are the sandbars, uh, how do the currents run offshore, what's the tidal schedule, uh, where are the channels that you can operate safely, where not to go. These are things that you can't pick up in a day. You have to uh, learn through experience. And so this was the limiting factor for the crew, I think, and probably one of the reasons why they didn't uh, try and do anything about the blockade right away. <clears throat> so after this sinking, <clears throat> Horace Hunley, who was in Charleston, who had come with the whole team, went back to Bogart and said, okay, can you please give us our submarine back? We want to try and do something, and we need time to, to learn and to practice and to you know, prepare to engage the enemy fleet offshore. And he relented. Um, and so fast forward two months later or so in October, um, they were practicing. Um, now, the Hunley's weapon system at the time was a towed, what we call a torpedo. Uh, it's called a torpedo because, it, because of the similarity of the, the device to a torpedo fish. Um, it's not a torpedo in the modern sense of a you know, self-propelled tube. This is just an explosive device that they're using, uh, say a floating bomb, really. Um, and they towed this behind the vessel. And the, the, the plan was they would dive, they would approach the target vessel and they would dive under its keel. And, you know, come up on the other side while dragging this uh, explosive device against the hull. That was how they were going to use Hunley as a, as a submersible. And uh, <clears throat> they had tested this. It proved it worked. At some point, though, they decided to switch this weapon system. We think it may have been after uh, the second sinking. So what happened was Hunley was practicing with this device. He was diving under a target ship, um, and something went wrong, and they ended up... Uh, embedded in the mud at the bottom of the river. This was in the Cooper River in Charleston, you know, not offshore. Um, you can imagine if you angled down improperly how the bow could you know, embed itself in the mud. And we believe something along those lines happened. Again, we only know so much uh, based on the, the written accounts of what happened. Um, they recovered the submarine a second time, 
uh, waited a bit for the bodies to decompose and then remove them from inside the submarine. And these bodies were the primary crew, including Horace uh, Hunley himself, who was the captain. Uh, and so uh, that, you think, might be the end of this whole endeavor. Hunley's dead. Uh, the main crew from Mobile's gone. Uh, but there were other people involved in the project who weren't on board that day. Um, and one of them was a man named George Dixon who gotten involved uh, he was an army uh, lieutenant, uh, and he was injured in 1862 in the Battle of Shiloh, shot in the leg. Um, and while he was recovering in Mobile, he uh, uh, got involved in one way or another with this project, with the construction of the submarine as they were building it. Um, and so he became associated with the project. We're not sure, entirely sure what his role was or how his involvement exactly. Again, not a lot of information. But we do know that at this point he came to Charleston and approached Beauregard and asked to be given a, another chance to try and do something with the submarine. And Beauregard agreed under two conditions. One, uh, he agreed to let Dixon, um, uh, he was going to give him supplies, he was going to help support it, uh, whatever he needed, paint, rope, you know, uh, refit, recondition the submarine, get it ready for operation again. But also, Dixon needed volunteers. He needed a new crew. Um, and so Beauregard agreed to let him ask for volunteers from the, the military units in and around the Charleston area. Um, on the condition there being that he had to tell these guys exactly what the uh, uh, risks were involved, what the dangers were. Basically, you can't sugarcoat it. You have to tell them exactly how risky this will be and what, the, you know, what could happen. Um, Secondly, he asked Dixon to change his attack system, his attack method. Um, he thought diving was too risky, given the two sinkings already having taken place. As he, We have some letters from him, and he says, you know, or another man writing him after the war said, you know, you, given the 13 lives already lost on board the submarine, you were not inclined to let Dixon move forward with another attempt. Um, 13 men had died, and they hadn't done anything about the blockade. So... Uh, um, but he did eventually relent, um, but he said Dixon could not use the submarine as it was originally intended, as a diving vessel. They had to stay on the surface and take their explosive torpedo or device and, and place it on a spar attached to the bow. Now, this had been done by small boats, surface boats, that were trying to sneak up and uh, you know attack some of these uh, ships block of the blockading fleet. Again, unconventional methods, but uh, the Confederates had no other option. They didn't have a, a naval vessels that could, could counter this. So, um, so this weapon system had been used in Charleston, so it makes sense that Beauregard would recommend and ask Dix Dixon to use this kind of uh, system. And Dixon didn't want to do this. This was you know, basically turning his submarine into just a small little surface vessel. Um, the whole uniqueness of Hunley was that it was a submarine. It could dive. And now he's being ordered to stay on the surface, but he had no choice. Uh, that would be he had to follow the general's uh, orders. So, so he switched the weapon system. Uh, they they used a spar-mounted torpedo and began uh, getting a new crew together, uh, new crew of volunteers, um, and then practicing and training to make an attack. And they, the third and final uh, attempt, or you know, the third crew. And there, the final attempt of Hunley happened on February 17th, 1864, so a few months after that. Um, and that's when they, they, they did their historic, uh, made their historic attack and uh, became part of history. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So well, the Housatonic's sitting there, the Hunley with... I suspect some very frightened men, knowing that already 13 people have died in this vessel, paddled towards her. And what exactly happened? Well, we don't know how this mission started. We know it was a night attack. Uh, We don't have any direct account of of the the mission from the crew of Hunley itself, of course, or anybody on shore, really. Um, Our primary source of information comes from the testimony of the crew of Housatonic. And so as they describe it, the way the attack unfolded, they were anchored about four miles offshore. Um, the way that this worked, uh, you'd have a fleet of uh, the, the South Atlantic blockading squadron was composed of a few dozen or dozen or two uh, traditional standard uh, wooden hauled ships. Uh, they were all all had steam engines in addition to uh, to sails. Um, and they were complemented by about half dozen ironclads. Uh, think of uh, the USS Monitor from 1862. Um, it's a low iron constructed hull with a turret on the top that can swivel back and forth. Um, so they had about a dozen or half dozen of these, a pretty potent force for the time. Um, and the ships would be stationed offshore at a safe distance from uh, the shore batteries. So you can imagine on the beach and at various fortifications, the Confederates had their, impl- uh, their gun batteries. And they would fire at ships that came too close. And so you had a several-mile distance between the two forces. And so the attack had to go that four miles distance to the anchored ships that were working on uh, on the blockade. Now, the blockade had reached a stalemate, so the ships of the blockading fleet were primary. Their primary duty was to intercept blockade runners, small ships that would try and sneak in to bring supplies in and out of Charleston. They were trying to enforce the blockade by intercepting these ships, preventing Charleston from getting goods, trying to starve them out, uh, as it were, uh, hoping they'll surrender. Um, and so the Hunley's mission was to attack one of these ships anchored offshore as part of the block that, 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 uh, that was one of the ships of the blockading fleet. And so they had to go four miles offshore. So they were seen approaching about 200 yards off the starboard bow. Um, 
Uh, they, it wasn't certain what it was when it was approaching because uh, the Hunley is, was very low in the water. And so the initial lookout reported it to the officer in charge on deck. And he looked through his glass and, and thought maybe it was a, a log or floating debris. Uh, couldn't tell what it was. Uh, they called somebody else up there and they looked and reported that, well, it can't be. It's moving against the, the current. Um, and so they sounded the alarm. But by this time, the Hunley was already making its approach. Uh, all of the sailors moved to their, their battle positions, um, but Housatonic didn't have enough time to get their main pivot gun on the deck, <clears throat> their large bore cannon, uh, angled and uh, targeted on Hunley. They did, however, shoot at it with small arms, pistols, rifles. Uh, but Hunley moved parallel to the hull of Housatonic and then turned in and attacked the starboard quarter, the aft uh, quarter. Um, they came in um, and set off their charge, and Houstonic sank within 10 minutes. Uh, so as I said, they received small arms fire, um, but uh, nothing else. Uh, their, their angle of approach was about per- perpendicular to the hull. We don't know why they chose this area for the attack. We know that upon sighting and confirming that this was one of those Confederate... I mean, they, you know, uh, the, North, the Navy knew about the Confederate torpedo boats. You know, there were spies on both sides, so everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing. Uh, and so they had been prepared for this kind of attack. <clears throat> um, Admiral Dahlgren had given orders that, that, that all the ships had to have so many pounds of pressure in their boilers. They had to be ready to slip their bow anchor. Uh, that's basically just drop the, the chain, throw a buoy, come back, get it later, but then be able to move immediately. And they were backing. They had already started their engines. They already started to move. Uh, so um, we don't know exactly what the Hunley intended to do, uh, but we know what they did. Um, they set off their charge, and uh, uh, as you know, we have the reports of them coming in, and uh, as they were right next to Housatonic, the crew was firing down with small arms. But once the explosion happened... Uh, the crew of Houstonic didn't pay much attention to what happened to Hunley. And so we don't have any more accounts of it after that. No, but we assume that she was just caught in the blast and that's what made her... her well, that's the million-dollar question now, isn't it? Uh, we don't know what happened. Um, we don't... I mean, and that's where archaeology comes into play here. Uh, so no more information uh, is available until the discovery of the submarine you know, in 1995, 136 years after uh, after this event. Um, Such a wonderful statement that it's so easy to kind of gloss over, but that, that you know, you found it again. Right. <laughs> 1995, right. absolutely right. astonishing. Right. Is, that a, is that like, um, I know, I'm thinking about things like the Vasa, uh, where, where they had a rough idea of where it was, but just didn't kind of have the wherewithal to pick it up. Is that the same thing with the Hunley, or did you have to find it first? It had to be could, rediscovered. Um, yeah. Everybody, I mean, the location of Houstonic has been known since it sank. Um, you know, immediately after the U.S. Navy recovered, well, four miles offshore in Charleston, to understand this, um, is only about 30 feet or um, uh, 10 meters in depth. Um, and so it's very accessible. It was accessible then, it's accessible now. Uh, the visibility is terrible offshore. There's a lot of suspended uh, particles in the water column, so... Um, so there's not a lot to see, but uh, uh, Housatonic was a big enough vessel that when it did sink and hit the bottom, um, much of it was still sticking out of the water. Uh, you know, Housatonic was a large warship uh, and uh, uh, 200 feet long or so. Um, and, uh, and so um, it was a contributing factor to the surviving 
members of Housatonic's crew. Only five men died on board Housatonic as a result of this attack. Uh, primarily because, again, the, the, the mast and the rigging and other things were still out of the water when Housatonic settled to the bottom. And so we have you know, great testimony of, of what exactly happened. But, um, you know, this, uh, this event, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of figure out what happened after the attack uh, because of this. But, you know, the starting point has always been the wreck of USS Usatonic. So the Navy was able to salvage material from it. And, uh, anything of value for them, the guns, um, other things they could get, they could send divers down. Uh, after the war, well, during the war and then after, um, uh, after Charleston fell to the north, uh, there was an effort to clear out the debris from the war. Uh, you could imagine a number of hulks offshore, uh, sunken vessels and, and other collateral damage. Uh, and they wanted to open the port of Charleston to uh, trade again. So they uh, hired salvers to go out and recover some of these wrecks. Uh, recover things, but then tear them down. Um, hazards to navigation, so clear them down to the waterline, and then later down to the sea bottom. And so this happened through a number of episodes of salvage over the years, four or five. Um, at one point, they dropped dynamite on the wreck of Usatani to try and break it up a little more. You know, from our perspective, this is like, you know, something we hate to see, destruction of a historic shipwreck. But mm. uh, yeah. from their perspective, this was junk they needed to clear out. And uh, so, uh, but the wreck of Houstonic was plotted on charts. Again, hazardous navigation. So um, other sailors, fishermen needed to steer clear of it so their nets wouldn't get snagged on it. They wouldn't run into it. Uh, so that's that was always the starting point for any investigation of what happened. At, at the time, people assumed... And even part, uh, people that had worked on or were associated with uh, the Hunley project, um, they assumed that Hunley had been dragged down with a sinking wreck of Housatonic, that it wasn't buoyant enough to get away. Uh, they made their attack, and then as Housatonic sank, it pulled Hunley down with it, and that eventually someone would find the submarine you know, tangled up in the wreckage of Housatonic. That was what everybody kind of assumed. And salvers were told to go out there when they're working on Housatonic to keep an eye out for this, uh, you know, submersible that should be with it. It was never found. And so speculation began what, what happened to, uh, to Hunley. Um, and so most efforts to, to find the submarine were restricted. Um, as I said, visibility was poor. And so if you're on a ship uh, sailing around out there, you're not going to see anything. Even with divers, you're really not going to see anything. You'd have to be extremely lucky. If it's not tangled up in the wreck of Houstonica, it could be anywhere. So it really wasn't until the advent of, of modern technology, you know, beginning in the 80s, uh, magnetometers um, that uh, surveyors could hope to find, you know, large magnetic anomalies underwater or even buried in the sea bottom. And so these efforts began, you know, in the 70s and 80s, but, you know, it really was dependent on the technology. Uh, so that was the technology, a towed magnetometer that was used to find the submarine in, in 1995. And it really was up to the survey team, which direction do they go? Okay, it's not with Housatonic, so where could it be? We'll start there and we'll work outwards. Um, most people thought the Hunley would have been found or should have been found between the wreck of Housatonic and the shore, assuming that something happened to the submarine as it was trying to make its way home, back to shore. But in fact, when it was found, it was the opposite direction. Uh, it was a thousand feet uh, seaward of Housatonic, uh, and not in a location that anybody had anticipated. Mm. It's such a wonderful story. What's your favorite artifact that's been raised that isn't the submarine? 
Uh, my favorite. That's a hard thing. Um, there's, there's so many interesting artifacts that have been found with, uh, with Hunley. Um, but, uh, one of my favorites is, uh, uh, basically a dog tag. Uh, during the civil war, soldiers were on their own for coming up with any identifying materials that, uh, that would fight in the field. Uh, the dog tags as we know them today, or identification tags were not uh, given to soldiers as a matter of course. They would be something that people would put, uh, fashion or purchase for themselves so that their families, if they were killed in battle, would know what happened to their remains. Uh, this is very important, especially during this period when uh, wounds and injuries for soldiers in the field were often catastrophic, um, people blown apart, that kind of thing. Uh, tactics were, were, were Napoleonic and, and uh, uh, weapons had progressed so that uh, tactic, but tactics hadn't caught up with the change in weaponry. So people were being mowed down and it was pretty gruesome. And, uh, and so these guys would, would buy or fashion stuff to stick in their pockets, attached to their jackets, so that when their bodies were found, their families would know what happened. Um, and so we found one of these on board uh, Hunley, uh, the last crewman, the crewman furthest away from the captain, uh, arguably the second in command because he had to operate the aft pump and a number of other things. Uh, he had a dog tag around his neck. We found it with his skeletal remains, um, actually on the, the base of his skull. And there was evidence of a small chain, so he had had it around his neck. Um, the problem was the, the dog tag said Ezra Chamberlain um, of the 7th Connecticut Volunteer Infantry. And so we're thinking, well, Connecticut, that was uh, a state fighting for the North. So what, mm. is a, uh, what is a Union soldier doing on board Hunley? Well, further research revealed that uh, Ezra Chamberlain was 25 years old um, from Killingly, uh, Connecticut, um, and the man who was wearing it was in his 30s. So this was not the individual, uh, uh, the same individual, right? Uh, and so further research revealed that Ezra Chamberlain had fought in the summer of 1863 in Charleston. The 7th Connecticut had been in the area fighting in the Battle of Morris Island, just uh, south of Charleston, trying to take uh, Fort Wagner. Uh, the 7th Connecticut was the first, uh, one of the first units in the first day of assault. They, were, they took heavy casualties, and Ezra Chamberlain was listed as missing in action. His body was never recovered. Uh, his family uh, uh, created a gravestone back in Killingly in Connecticut, but his, again, they had no remains. Um, and so uh, it makes sense that uh, the dog tag would be in the Charleston area, but the man wearing the dog tag was a man named Joseph Ridgway. Um, and so what's fascinating to me is why would you wear, uh, you know, soldiers take trophies in war. Um, it's not uncommon. Uh, Ridgway, though, was a sailor and had no reason to, he wasn't involved in the Battle of Morris Island uh, that summer. Um, he had no connection to that engagement uh, as a sailor. The, the Navy had little to do with this, this, this land fight. But uh, sailors and soldiers trade souvenirs, these kind of things. Um, so it's not impossible that, that through a number of hands, someone could get a trophy that was picked off the battlefield after the, afterwards. Um, but you know, the whole idea of a dog tag is to uh, identify your remains. Uh, here's Joseph Ridgway going out to make an attack on, on a ship offshore. Uh, possibility of death is there, uh, but he's wearing somebody else's dog tag. Makes no sense at all. He knows exactly what will happen if they find his body floating in the ocean afterwards. They're going to say, we found Ezra Chamberlain. You know, they're just going to assume. Uh, so his body would go un unidentified. Um, so it makes no sense why he would wear another man's dog tag. We've thought about whether he's mm. 
Could he not read? Did he not know? I'm sure somebody told him what it was. It, it, it was nice. It was metal. It looked like a coin. Um, they would fashion these tags to, you know, to be appealing. Uh, had George Washington's portrait on the other side. Uh, and his, his uh, unit information and all the, the or Ezra Chamberlain's unit information. So it's fascinating to me because one of the things of archaeology, it's not just about the physical remains. It really is about trying to understand what happened through the people involved. Because history is about people. It's not about places or, or items or artifacts. It's what we're trying to, we're using those to try and understand the people who lived during this time. And what they were thinking, what they did, and why they did it. And so we try and get inside their, uh, their minds a bit. And this is a perplexing one for me because I cannot understand why Joseph Ridgway would wear Ezra Chamberlain's dog tag. Uh, mm-hmm. How does that help him? Um, did he, you know, what was his motivation? And this is fascinating to me. I don't have an answer. Um, we don't know. But it, maybe he was trying to hide his own identity. Maybe it sure. was a maybe it was a bit of a joke. Maybe it was a kind of a wry comment on something. But it's it is a truly wonderful story, and it makes me think that um, I, I love things like this because history is really doing its job. When you um, you think you found the answer to something, like you've discovered the Hunley, and then it just opens up a, a Pandora's box right. of chaos. And right. you, don't even, right. you don't know what's happening at all. Well, yeah, and that, you know that's what's fascinating about this project is there's so many unknowns. Because of our lack of information, uh, we rely heavily on the archaeology. Um, and archaeology is like crime scene investigation. Um, and so this would be like a really cold case where a lot of the primary evidence of what happened as we reconstruct the events has sort of faded away over time. Um, it's dissolved away. And so we found the remains of the crew, but they were entirely skeletal. So we can only say so much about uh, what injuries they had or cause of death. Um, you know, so there's so many things that we just don't understand, and there's no smoking gun. There's no one thing that says, "Ah, this is what happened." I'm even less inclined to uh, to say talk about the Hunleys sinking because they could have intentionally gone and sat on the bottom. They have that capability, um, and so they may they may have gone down unintentionally, sunk, or they may not have. The you know we found all of the remains of the crew. They had decomposed to the point where they were skeletal, but the skeletal remains, given the environment um, had not decomposed so they were in very good condition but no injuries were noted on the crew but also peculiar uh, strangely enough in a peculiar way the crew was still sitting at their stations nobody had moved out of position so there's no sign of panic on board and so a simple drowning where a hole is made in the hull water's rushing in they go down they drown simple typical what you'd expect not what happened in this case because nobody moved um, and, it, you know, you, there was no sign of panic. So nobody nobody recognized the danger to themselves and tried to do anything. So now we have to look at other reasons why they were seemingly unresponsive to um, whatever happened. Um, and so it's possible that instead of going down unintentionally, they went down intentionally to maybe wait for the tide to change so they could move their slow lumbering vessel back towards shore with the help of the incoming tide. Um, and they went and sat on the bottom for a brief period. And possibly they stayed too long and... Uh, the decreasing oxygen levels inside the vessel caught up with them and they uh, passed out and asphyxiated. Speculation. Uh, we don't know. And I find that fascinating. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of room for ideas. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, the, the way to approach it is to just look at the evidence and see what it tells you. Uh, pet theories don't really apply here. It's really about what does the evidence say is possible and what does the evidence say is not possible Slowly but surely, we're using that evidence to remove theories or hypotheses from uh, uh, from our uh, our thoughts about the matter. 
Um, and hopefully with, with more evidence and more analysis of the evidence, we can then narrow that down to a point where we can maybe say something more significant and more conclusive about what actually happened to, you know, February 17th, 1864. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story today. Absolutely. It was, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't let this be the last thing you do to interact with the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Go back to our brilliant back catalogue and check out a huge range of maritime histories, not just about maritime disasters. We've got all sorts of other wonderful stuff there. Biographies, naval battles, ship design, iconic ships, whatever it might be. I promise you there's a little bit of it there. Even something on mermaids for those who are interested in myths and legends. Please also don't just listen to the podcast, but check out all of the fabulous videos on our YouTube page. There's tons of wonderful material there, including the use of artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads alive, the animation of battle plans, the use of 3D modelling to show you around magnificent ships of the past. You will not believe your eyes, I promise. Please also note that the podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so do please check out everything that both institutions are currently doing. The Lloyd's Register Foundation's archive and education centre can be found at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and become part of a society that has been helping to preserve maritime history for well over a century. Nothing could be finer.